If you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn to Romans chapter 7 this morning. When I was in college, my roommate went to a church with a man who tried to encourage my friend, my roommate, in his walk with Christ, in his pursuit of holiness by telling him his own testimony. And even coming to this point and saying, Jason, listen, you just need to reach a point in your life where you live above sin. He said, for years, I haven't sinned. I am fully sanctified and therefore I don't sin. But rather than being an encouragement to my roommate, to my friend Jason, this was a great discouragement to him because Jason was aware of his own heart, its own predilections, its own bent towards sinfulness. He knew even in, in the, the sitting still of a class how his mind could move in different directions and therefore defile him before God. And so his questions revolved not in how do I achieve this, but how in the world could I ever achieve this? If that's the direction I'm headed, maybe I'm not even a Christian. This morning, as we think about this for ourselves, what is your belief? How do you understand God's plan for your life in relationship to sin? Is there in your mind a hope that one day in this life, not the age to come, not the life to come, not after our resurrection and eternal glory with Christ, but in this life that you will one day reach a point where you stop sinning? Perhaps you're here and you think about that and you just cannot imagine a life apart from sin because the struggle is so thick. It is so real for you that you just wonder, maybe like my friend, am I even a Christian? This morning we're returning to our series on the book of Romans and it's been uh, several weeks since we've been here. So I want to begin by reminding us where we've been so far as we begin to think about those questions of the saint and his sin. And what does the struggle look like? Where did Paul come from so that he reaches this topic in Romans chapter 7? You remember that in the first few chapters of this letter to the Roman Christians, Paul presents the glorious righteousness of God in stark contrast to the wicked rebellion of humanity. Paul says that God has revealed his glory in creation so that anyone... And everyone who just simply looks out at the world around them, at the scars, stars in the sky, they will know there is a creator God. But Paul also says that in our wickedness, we have intentionally turned away. We have rejected thoughts of God. Why? So that we can live a life the way that we want to. So why are so many people atheists? It's simply this, really, I think it comes down to probably for most of them. It's not that there's not enough evidence. It's not that they uh, are, are wrapped up in evolutionary belief. It's that they do not want to be accountable to anyone but themselves. If they're on television, they don't want network censors. If they have friends, they don't want them to say, oh, you're wrong about this. They, they don't want any moral standard for their life. And the way to accomplish that is to remove any external source of authority, namely God. And that's what sin is. It's rebellion against God's authority over our life to tell us what is right and what is wrong and how we should live before Him. Paul says that we willingly cover our eyes and reject the innate sense of right and wrong that God has put in the heart of every person. Therefore, we are justly condemned for our sin before God. We have no excuse. We know there's a God. We know right and wrong, and we choose to reject those things, and therefore we are rightly, justly, fairly condemned for that sinful, wicked life. Paul says we die both physically and spiritually under God's wrath. But then he gives us hope. 
the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that God has saved a people from himself. It is God's wrath that is coming into the world against sin and God in his love and in his grace sends a savior to rescue sinners from that wrath. That grace is manifested in the sending of his own son, Jesus, who gives his life for his people, who dies on a cross and bears the wrath that they deserve. The salvation that we can enjoy in him, forgiveness and new life with God comes when we put our faith in Christ, not by doing something right, not by some moral level by which God says, oh, now I will receive you. No, he says all of it, all of it is worthless apart from the righteousness that can be found from God in Christ. And so Jews and Gentiles alike, not just God's old covenant people, but now a new covenant people, the church made up of Jews and Gentiles from everywhere around the world, they can all come and become heirs of God in Christ. In fact, next week we will see that they are even adopted as God's own children. But the gospel goes on. God's saving activity through Christ is not just about removing the penalty for our sins, but also removing the power of sin in our life. Paul says in chapter 6 that sin is like a slave master. And apart from Christ, before our salvation, before becoming a Christian, we were enslaved to sin. We had no capacity to say no. Now, does that mean that we always did every sinful thing that we possibly could? No, because we have laws in this country and we we lack opportunity and we don't want to get caught, but the desires are there. And without those restraints, then yes, we'd freely give in to our sinful desires. But Paul says through Jesus now, not only will we not face the wrath of God, the penalty for our sins, but now the power of sin is broken. It is canceled. It is nullified. So now we are free to pursue righteousness, to say no to sin. That is a massively important reality. Because when the temptations come before us, we can believe the promises of God and turn away from that sin, knowing that eternal joy with Him will be far greater than the fleeting pleasures of sin in this life. But Paul also says in chapter 6, we must fight against temptation. Because... Christ has removed the penalty of sin, the power of sin, but he has not yet removed the presence of sin. As God's people, we still have to deal with sin. Sin is not removed from our hearts, from our lives, from the world in which we live. In fact, the Bible, when you you pull out, it is seen in Romans, but is also seen across the rest of the New Testament. God's people live, as it were, in two worlds. Because we have been given salvation through Christ, the Spirit of God is given, sent into our hearts and seals us for the day of our redemption. We are now part of the new creation that God is bringing into the world, a new creation that will not be stained by sin at all. At the same time, we still live in this old creation. So we are surrounded by a world of sin and we feel the drag, the spiritual draw, the the, the alluring away from who we are in Christ to participate in sin. We, We struggle through the presence of sin. And so we come now to Romans chapter seven. And he explains that struggle, why it is we struggle, but more importantly, how do we overcome the struggle? How do we deal with the presence of sin, both the wrong ways and the right ways? One of the reasons why this is so practically helpful for us is because there is the potential of utter hopelessness on both sides of misunderstanding Romans 7. If we believe like some that now how we live as Christians doesn't really matter with God, 
that all we need is forgiveness and now we can live like the devil. We can delight in sin and pursue it as long as we have prayed and received forgiveness. There ultimately is a hopelessness and despair that will come to overtake us. But likewise, if on the other side we think, okay, God saved me, but now I've got to be perfect. I've got to reach a point where I don't sin or else I will not be acceptable to God. That also is the path of hopelessness. In fact, some of you that were with us in our community groups last year read J.I. Pack, yeah, Packer's introduction to John Owen's book, The Mortification of Sin. And in that stream of thought that the Christian must be perfect, he said he almost went literally insane. He, he was to the point of thinking about suicide because he knew, I can't ever achieve that. And then he found John Owen who took him to Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8 and showed him no sinless perfection is not the expectation of Christians in this life because they exist between two worlds. Do we pursue holiness? Yes. But when we fall flat on our face and land in the muck and mire of sin, we don't despair and think somehow we've been cut off from God. We look again to Christ and find cleansing and renewal and strength to get up and fight the struggle again. That's what we want to see in Romans chapter 7 this morning. So I encourage you to follow along as I begin reading in verse 1. Actually, I'm going to back up and we're going to read the end of chapter 6 because if you remember, Paul's not writing with, he doesn't stop and say, chapter 7. Uh, you know, this is one big long letter for him. And so he's picking up the end of what he says. Uh, chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers and sisters, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. 
Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but it's the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my inward being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of God to us this morning. Hear it and believe. I want to admit from the outset that uh, up until this week, I thought Romans chapter 2 was the most difficult to reconcile with the rest of the book. And now I come to chapter 7 and my preparations say this is the hardest chapter in the book. And that will be that way until some other chapter becomes the hardest. But uh, we have a lot to, as you can hear, a lot to untangle, a lot to process, a lot to think through. So at the beginning, let me just tell you, this is what I hope you will see by the time we get to the end. In chapter 7, Paul wants to make a couple things clear. First of all, you will not be free from sin by obeying the law of God. That may seem counterintuitive, right? He has said the law is good, the law is righteous, the law is holy. But his point is, if you just list out all the commands and say, if I do this, I'm going to be holy and free from sin, you'll fail every time. That's not the way to pursue righteousness. We will try in vain to keep the law of God. Now that might raise a whole host of questions in our mind, and I hope we can answer those this morning. But here's the second thing you need to understand. We see a hope filled reality in this passage. Our deliverance, not just from the penalty of sin, not just from the power of sin, but also the presence of sin is a certainty. And that certainty, that hope we have of that future day after our death in our resurrection where the presence of sin is eradicated fuels our obedience and our confidence to put sin to death in our life in the here and now. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's, that's what I want you to grasp by the end of our time together. If that's going to be our experience, then we need to do a few things. First of all, we need to remember the death of Christ. We need to remember the death of Christ. We see this in the first six verses. Uh, Paul is still pressing home uh, what he has been talking about in chapter 6. Chapters 6, 7, and 8 really cohere together in the same way that chapters 1, 2, and 3 go together and 4 and 5 go together. And as we'll see in future weeks, 9, 10, and 11 go together. Paul kind of kind of runs through these kind of central themes that are interly, uh, are, that are, are interwoven, interconnected quite clearly. And so a lot of what he's talking about in chapter 6 in terms of the grace of Christ for salvation and also sanctification rolls over into chapter 7. His point is, listen, in chapter 6, just because you've been saved by grace and not works doesn't mean you get to live however you want. If God's grace is truly at, at work in your life, it will lead you to holiness. It will lead you to a different kind of life. And so here he says, uh, really what, what he, is, he is unpacking what he said in chapter 6, verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. 
Paul went off in a different direction, but now he's coming back to that and explaining what does it mean that we're not under the law. And he says in this opening section that we need to remember the death of Christ because through the death of Christ, we have freedom from the law. We have freedom from the law. This is the principle he lays out in verse 1. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. If you were born under a law, that law is binding on you until the day that you die. You can't escape it. That's what Paul is saying. But how is it that we're not under the law anymore? We're still alive. We're still in this world. As he said in chapter 6, we are bound to it until he dies. And so he gives an illustration to explain in verses 2 through 3. He says, think about marriage. When a couple enters into a marriage covenant, they are bound to one another for life. A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. That makes sense, right? But what happens if she tries to leave the law of marriage, that covenant relationship, before the husband dies? Verse 3, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is still alive. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry another and not be an adulteress. And so Paul is just laying out what is the biblical normative view about marriage as an illustration of this principle about God's people and the law. It says if if a woman marries a man, then they are bound together, that there is a law that exists now between them. And if she tries to flee, or we could even say uh, if he tries to flee, then they're going to be guilty of adultery. But if one of them dies, the other is free to marry. Death severs the marriage covenant. I mean, that makes sense. But notice what he says here. Likewise, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Why? That you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. When we put our faith in Christ, God sent his spirit into our hearts to unite our lives to Christ spiritually. So Jesus' death on the cross became our death on the cross. He bore God's wrath in our place, and it was as if we were there experiencing that wrath as well. Likewise, God raised Christ from the dead, and so also raises us both spiritually now with Christ, but also promises a physical resurrection just like Christ on the last day. So notice what Paul is saying here. We have died to the law through the death of Christ so that we could be raised with Christ and be married to him now. Dead to the law, alive to Christ. That's the point that he's making here. And so unlike just having a relationship to a bare list of commands, that's what the law was, right? 613 commands uh, summarized by 10 of them written in the stone, the rest written down by Moses and given to every king and priest on down through until Christ came. He says, now you don't have a relationship with a mere written code. Now you have a relationship with my son who is alive, who loves you and can relate to you, the savior whom he raised from the dead. And what's the result? The result is a fruitful relationship a fruitful relationship. Paul says, you have died of the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that, there's the purpose, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Death to the law through Christ doesn't mean lawlessness. It doesn't mean, oh, no law, no commands, just do whatever we want. That's not what it means. In fact, I just read this week something that I had never heard before, uh, but I trusted the source that it's true. And that is this, 
You, you think about, okay, you just think about your Bible for a second. You think about the relative size between the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? Here's Old Testament, here's New Testament, right? But guess what? There are more commands towards God's people in the New Testament than in all of the Old Testament put together. Imagine that. God is not saying you're free from commands. What he is saying is you are free from the old covenant law. Why? Because it, we will see in a minute, it only leads to more sin, not godliness. That's why, that's why we put an end to that relationship, or rather God put an end to that relationship with us in Christ. So now that we are in Christ, we don't just have a kind of all bets are off lifestyle. There was a very popular book that came out about maybe 20 years ago now that said, if you are a Christian, God doesn't care about rules anymore. He doesn't care about right or wrong. Seriously? Have you read the New Testament? Have you read the Sermon on the Mount? There's a lot of right and wrong things in there that we're told to do and not do. How can you possibly say that? Well, it's from someone that just doesn't know the Bible. It's from someone who is importing what they think and what they want back onto what God has said. Without Christ, the law provokes our sinful passions. It leads us into sinfulness, which, is the, which leads to the fruit of death. That's what a mere written code means. Because when we hear the law, we know here's what we should do, but guess what? There's no power to do it. And that way, the law is like train tracks. It, it, it guides the train the direction it should go, right? But at least in a, in a coal train... The tracks provide no power to get it there. You set that train on there and say, okay, go, follow the tracks. It's not going to happen. You're going to have someone in there shoveling it in, shoveling it in, getting the fire going, stoking it to move in the right direction. And Paul says, the law was just like train tracks. Told you where to go, but it gave you no power to go there. And so instead of pursuing righteousness, it ended up provoking sin within you. But now, now we have the Spirit, the new way of the Spirit now we have power for obedience. We have died to the law through Christ, and now that God has made him alive, we are alive. But in that relationship, by his spirit, by the spirit of Christ, we have the power to bear the fruit of righteousness for God. That's what Paul says. The law had a specific, limited purpose, and now we are dead to it because it did not produce the righteousness of God. It produced the fruit of death in our lives. Now you can imagine... Those that are reading, he said in verse 1, you who know the law, those that have grown up Jewish are thinking, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Paul. Are you saying the law was sinful? Are you saying the law was wicked? Are you saying that this whole time we've built our entire culture trying to obey God to the law and it was, it was, it was detrimental to us? And Paul says, no, 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 wait, you've misunderstood. Let me be clear. You need to understand the design of the law. That's the second thing that we see here in verses 7 through 12. We must understand the design of the law. What, what, what does God intend for it to be? And then what does it actually do or become in our life? First, he shows <coughs> that the design of the law was one that promised life. When we read the law, we see the promise of life. Paul asks, what shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Absolutely not. That's not what we're saying. In fact, just the opposite. Look at verse 12. The law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. So, so Paul wants to be clear. There is nothing wrong with the law. It's good. It's God's eternal word. But 
But notice he says, despite the sin that's there, the commandment promised life. He says just previously, the the law produced death, but that wasn't its intent. It promised life. Now, those of you that have been tracking with us in our reading program this year may remember Leviticus 18, which you just read a a, a few days ago. And if if you're not on Leviticus yet, we've got numbers coming up this week. My advice is start fresh on numbers and pick up Leviticus and Exodus or wherever you're at on the weekends or something or at spare time. Uh, otherwise, you're going to get farther behind and farther behind or just double up, do two readings a day. That's some practical advice. Don't worry about that. Back to Leviticus 18. What does God say in Leviticus 18? The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. In other words, look, I liberated you from Egypt and I'm taking you to Canaan and in both places there were pagan peoples. Don't live like them. You know where you came from and you're going to encounter some wicked people here. Don't live like them. That's what he's saying. Instead, you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So you notice the law has the promise of life. If you do them, you'll live. Obey me and live. That was the intention of the law. The promise of life for those who obey. But again, what's the problem? The law can't produce life. The law can't produce obedience. And so even though the law promises life, you'll notice secondly, it provokes sin. It provokes sin. What shall we say then? That the law is sin by no means, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Paul here is thinking about his time before he came to faith in Christ, before his conversion on the Damascus road. Now, he doesn't mean without the law, I would have no idea what sin was. I would have no idea about right and wrong. Remember what we saw in chapter one and chapter two. God has written basic right and wrong into the hearts and minds of every person who lives. But we have an innate knowledge of, you know what? I shouldn't pick up an ax and chop up my neighbor, right? I mean, we just instinctively know that's not the right thing to do. We instinctively know even less than that. If they make me mad, I shouldn't just punch them in the face. We just know immediately I'm making a bad decision here. But in my self-justification, I'm going to do it anyway, right? What does he mean here? I would not have known sin. What he means is he would not have known just how sinful and pernicious and deceptive sin was. Sin is not just punching a neighbor, hacking one up in murder. Sin is also hating our brother, hating our neighbor. It goes beyond just the physical act to the level of the heart. See, how do you know that's what he thinks about? Look at the example he uses. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now there's 10 commandments that summarize the 613 that make up the law of God. Why did he pick the last one? You shall not covet. That's number 10, in case you don't know. Why in the world did he pick that? I think he picked it because it's the one that only deals with the heart. There's no way to physically covet something. You can steal it, but that's the fruit of coveting, right? 
You covet in your heart and that leads you to go and steal something or to blow your money wastefully and get something for yourself when you shouldn't do. It leads you to commit some physical act of sin. But the other commands, don't have any gods, don't have any idols, keep the Sabbath, no adultery, don't murder, all those things, if you don't actually physically engage in some activity, you might think you're obeying the command and you're not sinning. You might think, if I don't actually chop a person down, I've not murdered them. I'm I'm without sin. But coveting is a sin of the heart. There's no physical act to it. Paul grows up hearing this command over and over and over again. And then suddenly he realizes sin is more than just actions. Sin is more than just me physically doing something with my body that is wrong. Sin is a pervasive problem that goes to the core of my being. One of my favorite and probably one of the most famous um, you know, biographical illustrations of this comes from uh, the life of Augustine. Um, you may or may not know he wrote the first Christian biography, autobiography, explaining what his life was like before Christ, how he came to Christ, and what his life was like afterwards, called the Confessions. And I would commend a good modern translation of that to you to read. But one of those interesting things he talks about as being a child and being told, uh, stay out of this uh, neighborhood vineyard, uh, don't pick the fruit from that. And it happened to be, I guess, a vineyard of pear trees. And Augustine is told, don't go in there and get that fruit. That's not for you. And so he he hears that command, don't take the fruit, don't take the fruit, don't take the fruit. And he says that he begins to desire more intently to take the fruit. Now, here's the funny thing. Well, it's not funny, but it will be funny. He sneaks out at night and he grabs a whole handful of the fruit. But they're pears. And he confesses in the confessions, I don't even like pears. They're, they're terrible. They taste nasty. I didn't even eat the pears. I just stole them because I was told not to steal them. And he throws them to the wild animals out in the woods. That's the power of sin. And you think about how many times you've been told, don't eat a cookie from the cookie jar. What do you want more than anything else in that moment? Oh, I gotta have that cookie. I, I gotta have that cookie, right? More pervasively, more perniciously, you're introduced to a friend's wife. You know that she is your friend's wife. But suddenly, you find welling up within you a desire for her, a desire for something forbidden. In the sinfulness of your heart, you begin to to blur out all of the deficiencies that might be there. And you only see the positive things, and yet well up within your mind all of the defects and all of the bad things you don't like about your spouse. And you think, I I, I want her, I gotta have her. Or maybe it's position, Maybe it's power, maybe it's wealth. And you realize I'm going to have to do sinful things to achieve these things, but it doesn't matter. God says, no, you shouldn't have these things in this way. But you say, I got to have them, I got to have them. And so when you're told, don't do that, and suddenly you want it all the more. Paul says, that's how the law causes you to know sin. Sin is not just something you do with your body. It is something that goes to the core of your being that wells up within you, a desire for what God forbids. The law promises life. But he says it provokes sin in the heart of wicked men. And what's the result? The law ultimately produces death. It produces death. Look at verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seized an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Notice again that Paul wants to make clear the law itself is not at fault. The law is good. There's a sense in which even that, the title of that subpoint is misleading. 
It's not actually the law that produces death. It is sin using the law by which we experience death. Notice how Paul's experience echoes that of Adam and Eve. They knew about sin in the abstract. They were told, don't do this. Don't eat from this tree because it will be death to you. God had given them an amazing, he'd given them everything else they could possibly want or imagine. Look at all this benevolence. Look at all this grace. Look at all this love walking with them face to face in the garden. And he says, if you eat this, you're going to die. And what happens? They're told, you know, actually that's good for you. God doesn't want you to have it. He doesn't want you to be like him. And what does sin do? Was the command wrong? No, the command wasn't wrong. But sin begins to twist the command. It begins to use that command to provoke in them sin. And they take the fruit and they die along with the rest of humanity. Sin came alive in them and they died. Sin leverages the good law as a means of bringing condemnation to us. Therefore, Paul wants to make clear, salvation is not found in the law. Nor can we find sanctification, growth in holiness through the law. If you just sit down with your Bible and say, here's my list of things I've got to do today. Here's what I've got to keep. I've got to do these things and then I will be holy. We will be miserable. We will be hopeless. And ultimately, we will die in our sins. Paul says we must die to the law in order to experience spiritual life. And thanks be to God for the Christian, that has already happened. We saw that in the first seven verses. We died to the law through the death of Christ. So what is left for us to do? In the reigning verses, we see that we must fight for the defeat of sin. We must fight for the defeat of sin. Now, this is where we come to the passage. If you think, well, it's been confusing a little bit so far, it's, it's only going to get worse here. Because good, godly scholars that are going to be much closer to the throne of Christ than me on the last day disagree about how to understand what Paul's talking about here. Some of them say, look, it's clearly, Paul says, I, 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 me, me, me. He's talking about himself. This is his experience as a Christian. And some say, well, maybe, but he's not a mature Christian. He's an immature Christian. Or he's putting himself in the place of an immature Christian. And some say, no, 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 look, look at how he describes his, it, the, the struggle. It's so intense, it's so detailed. He's not a believer yet. And you're going, oh, I don't know. Uh, you know, who do I listen to? Well, um, you know, you may, you may not agree, but I'm just going to tell you now, I, I think Paul is describing his experience as a believer. Not just as a new believer, as an immature believer, but as, as an apostle of Christ. This is what he goes through. Not always. This is not meant to be what happens every single day of your life. It is. There's a big problem going on. But there are times when this is what we feel and how we ought to understand it and what we ought to do about it. Okay? So, we see here, we heard about him struggling with sin, with, with feeling the war of sin against his godly inward being in Christ. Paul wants us, I think, to understand that even Christians who have died to the law still struggle with the presence of sin. It's still there. We still must fight against it in order to bear fruit for God, as he said in verse 4. So how do we go about doing that? First, you need to discern your heart's weakness. Now, I know it says desires. Just cross that out. That's wrong and right. Weakness. Discern your heart's 
weakness? What does your heart want? When it encounters the law of God, does it want to listen or flee? Does it delight in sin or does it despise sin? All through this section, Paul goes back and forth showing how the law is good and it can even be helpful as long as we're not depending on it for salvation or power for sanctification. So the law is like your old college professor. He's no longer giving you exams in a grade and you have to have an account to him. Uh, You're accountable to him. Nevertheless, he's a great resource for information and advice. So the law is not the problem. That's what Paul is showing here. The law is not the problem. We must admit that we are the problem. We still struggle with sin. Sin is the enemy. And sin is found within us. So, you know, there's this temptation to externalize the problem. Uh, You know, it's not me. It's always something out here. And so even talking with some, some men that I love and respect... A, a while back, we were talking about this situation with this girl who um, they're convinced is a habitual liar. This guy said, maybe she has a, a demon of lying. I want to say, well, I'm sure I see that in the Bible, but maybe she's just a liar. Maybe she's just a sinner. I mean, that's the more likely explanation, I think, biblically. It's not always the devil made me do it, as Flip Wilson so famously said. Or it's not, well, this person's got a demon, obviously, look at their behavior. No, sometimes people are just sinful. That's what Paul wants us to understand. And we cannot be content with that as God's people. We are striving, we are fighting, we are pushing back against that. But in order to do that, we must first discern our heart's own weakness. We must admit we have sinful hearts and sinful desires. Verses 13 and 14. Did that which is good, the law, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through that which is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. We know the law is spiritual of the spirit, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Isn't it always interesting that you can find someone on social media that, that perhaps even claims to be a Christian, but the minute you say this activity is wrong, It's condemned by God. He is not pleased with it. They will be quick to say, well, how do you know what God wants? How do you know what God thinks about that situation? How dare you? What what presumption? What pride and vanity in you? And he's going to write back and say, he's given us the Bible. That's how we know. We're not making guesses. He's told us this is right and this is wrong. We don't have to wonder about something that's being sinful. I think very wisely, a youth pastor one time said to me, uh, said to a whole group of us, listen, if you ever got to come to me and say, is this sinful or not? 99% of the time, yes, it's sinful. You're just looking for an excuse to do it. Just don't do it. And, and it's the same here. Paul, God has made clear to us what he thinks. He has given us a law that reflects his character and commandments that guide us. And Paul says, when I'm in the midst of the struggle, giving in and doing what I ought not to do, I cannot look at the, I cannot or rather, I can look at the law of God and I can agree, yep, what I'm doing is wrong. God condemns this activity. The law is a perfect standard and it reminds me, I'm the one that's wrong, not God. I'm the one that is at fault. Verse 15, I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So it's no longer I who do, but sin that dwells within me. Now, this is where pastors and theologians get that phrase, indwelling sin. Though genuinely saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have an inherent weakness. We have an inherent bent towards sinning still. We, we are fighting against our old past 
and, and, and the temptations of this world to live out who we are in Christ. I think John Piper very helpfully comments on these verses, saying that Paul says, the Christian loves the law of God, esteems the law of God, delights in the law of God, concurs with it, regards it as good, and does not blame the law for his own failures. Instead, the Christian admits, and there is in all of us Christians, as long as this fallen age lasts, that we live on the earth, the reality of indwelling sin. If we're going to fight sin... We're going to fight temptation. We're going to pursue holiness. It must start with a realization of our weakness. We must discern the desires of our heart and their sinfulness and say, the problem is not God. The problem is not the law. The problem is not these things. The problem is, starts with me. It's one famous cartoon said, we've seen the enemy and it's ourselves. It's us. This is why if you are a Christian, then you must also dedicate yourself to war. You must dedicate yourself to war. Now, I will admit one of the strongest arguments against this being Paul as a Christian and, and for him being a non-Christian unbeliever is what he says in verse 14. I am of the flesh sold under sin. That, that is a powerful statement. And it sounds like the exact opposite of what he said in chapter 6, that the believer is no longer enslaved to sin. Okay, okay Paul, so you've said the Believer is no longer sold under, no longer a slave to sin, but now you're saying you are sold under sin, so that must mean that he's not a Christian yet, right? Well, no, because I think in the totality of the passage, I think we, we, it is pushing us to see, and, I'll, and we'll give, I'll go into this later more, it, 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 I think we see clearly that Paul is a Christian, but I think we also, if we look back at chapter 6, just a few verses later, we'll see the struggle that Paul's talking about here. Remember, he says, we are free from the power of sin, but he also tells the Romans, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. What is he saying? He's saying the fight of faith is a fight to remember who you are in Christ, that sin is not your king, Christ is. And we have this temptation in the middle of temptation to think, I'm helpless, I'm powerless, I want this so much, I know it's not right, but I'm going to do it anyway, it's like I have to do it. And Paul is saying, don't do that! Remember who you are! You feel like you're sold under sin, and he's saying you're not sold under sin, you are free from Christ! So you can grab the whip out of the taskmaster of, of sin and begin beating it back until the temptation flees because you're free in Christ. Paul says, I find it to be a law, a principle, this force in my life that what I want to do is right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inward being and the deepest part of who I am, a new creation in Christ. Yes, I love God's law. Verse 23, but I see in my members, in my body, Another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, that is, the parts of my body. The believer is a new creation in Christ, but there's this lingering sin that's incompatible with that new life. And it's a war that takes place in the inner being, in the deepest parts of who we are in Christ. Sin is constantly warring at us, saying, rebel, reject, be your own man, be your own woman. But the gospel speaking by the power of the Spirit is saying, no, that's death. That's all that's going to bring is misery and death. Remember the promises of life and the gospel. He has freed you from that sin. Don't give in to it. 
So as sin is constantly warring against us, we can't just say, oh, well, we must fight. We must make war against that which is warring against us. That's not easy to do. But Paul gives us the best encouragement possible towards that. In verses 24 and 25, we have the promise that we will be able to rejoice in deliverance through Christ. We can rejoice in deliverance through Christ. At the end of all these ruminations of a struggle of sin, Paul shouts out this cry of lament, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, what is this body of death? Well, it's his physical body. Not that somehow the spirit is good, but the body is bad. The Bible doesn't teach that. That's Greek philosophy. That's not scripture. Remember, you know, you hear, oh man, you hear so many Christians be like, ah, I just got to get rid of this old body of mine and I'll be free in heaven. Well, I got news for you. The old body of yours come back one day. A little thing called the resurrection and God's going to remake it. It is an unnatural thing for you to be just disembodied floating around heaven. That's why you look in Revelation and the saints that have been martyred say, God, when are you going to bring justice for us and give us our bodies back? This is great. We're in your presence, but this is not what we're made for. We are made to be physically before our God. And so, so don't ever think, oh, just this, just this body. I just get rid of this body. I mean, if you think that way, what are you going to do? You're going to go blow your brains out. Don't do that. That's not what God wants. But Paul is being clear here that as a result of Adam's sin, we all experience death in this body. As he said in verse 5, this body is what's used to commit sins and bear the fruit of death. Paul doesn't want to get rid of the body, but to be freed, to be delivered from the body's temptations to sin. Now, once again, some have objected and said, this cannot be the life of the Christian. It just seems too deep of a struggle. It seems too difficult. But I think it's precisely the, the depth of the struggle that points to the reality. This is Paul the Christian. If you are not a believer, if you are not saved you don't have any concept of this struggle. It's not there. Now, now could you engage in activities that you don't like the end consequences of? If you, if you drink yourself into oblivion, are you going to regret that? Sure, but that's not a standard against God. You're not looking at God's law. You're not looking at God's character and saying, look how much I'm failing. Look how hard sin is worn against me and how struggling I am to, to, to honor God with my life. That's not there if you're not a Christian. So for Paul to lament and struggle with his sin, it does not match up with what he says elsewhere about his life as a Pharisee. Remember what he says? He says, I was better than all of them. According to the law of God, I was blameless. Paul, Paul didn't struggle like this as a Pharisee. He didn't struggle like this before he came to Christ. It's only in being saved and having God's spirit and having a new life through Jesus that he begins to feel the wretchedness of his life because of the sin that dwells there. John Owen describes it like a swimmer in a river. He says if he's just swimming along with the current, you can hardly tell it's there. But, but the minute he begins to turn, he begins to swim directly across that current, suddenly he feels the power, he feels the weight of that which is pushing against him. Likewise, as Christians, we will feel the power of sin the most when we are most mindful of our new life in Christ and are pursuing holiness for joy and the glory of God. When we are pushing the hardest against the flow of the world, the flesh, and the devil, we will feel not just the drag of our old life, but the pushback we receive from those things which tempt us. 
And in the midst of that war, we have this promise of deliverance, deliverance from sin and death, both now and in the age to come. Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. The answer to my future hope of salvation, my power to defeat sin in the here and now is not keeping the law. It is the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has bought me and brought me to God through his own life, death, and resurrection for me. Not just some abstract, maybe some will be saved. A transaction took place when I put my hope and my confidence in Christ to be my Savior, whereby God counted me physically, spiritually there, enduring wrath. But it wasn't me. It was Christ on my behalf. And the righteousness that I need to be made right with Him is found in the righteous life that Christ Himself lived for me. So when the pressure is on and sin feels strong and temptation is, temptation is great and you give into it and you feel like a wretched Sinner, remember the evidence that you are saved is not seen in the fact that you're always winning the war against sin. Your confidence and your hope before God is not that you're always rejecting sin and living for God, that you have reached a state of perfection. That's not the assurance you have. Because I think Paul has said, you're never going to see it in this life. The confidence, the hope, the assurance we have that we are Christians is seen in this, that we are constantly at war for holiness. We are constantly at war for joy in Christ by denying the sinful desires of our flesh. Through Christ, we are part of the new creation that is coming into the world, but we're still right now part of the sin-stained world. But we have this hope of deliverance for when Christ comes and all sin will be shut away forever. And that hope gives us confidence and power for the fight now. Father, we're so thankful for your word and for the confidence that we have through your son. We have the guarantee, the promise of deliverance. Father, may we rejoice in that. May we grasp hold of it by faith so that we can make war against the sin which wars against us. Father, may we not be found slack. May we not be found aimless in this struggle against sin. But Father, may we be constantly pressing forward, sometimes failing, but always getting back up, seeking your forgiveness, confidence that you will give it because you've made us your own. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.